dive in today to a, a popular psalm. I love this psalm personally because I feel like it's one of the realest psalms. It's where the psalmist actually keeps it real. And I, I pray that you actually see that. I'm pretty sure you're going to see that into the second verse. Um, but for me, it is very encouraging to hear a man of God go through what he went through through this psalm. And my prayer is that you're able to identify with this psalmist today. Before we get into it, please close your eyes, bow your heads, and say a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to speak to your people, O oh Lord. Um, I'm not better than anybody here. I'm just chosen to speak this morning. And I pray that you increase in me right now as I decrease, O oh Lord, that your voice would be clearly heard, that your word, O oh Lord, would pierce between bone and marrow today, and that somebody would leave here with a renewed, regenerated spirit. Somebody would leave here with a new hope, a new sense of priority in their life, oh God. Speak, open the eyes and the ears of those under the sound of my voice to hear your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Neil deGrasse Tyson, popular guy. He's a famous American astrophysicist. He's also an author and a, a science communicator. Um, he was asked on the Chelsea Handler, Chelsea Lately show, whether or not he believed in God. This guy's uh, known for his intelligence. He's known for his studies of all the stars and galaxies. And he, has, uh, he even has a TV show on cable where he's talking about how the world began. And he's talking about the stars and Mars and all these great lofty thoughts. And she asked him, do you believe in God? And his response was a popular response that we would get today from any uh, scholars who are secular. And he said that um, he thinks it's wise to separate uh, your faith from your research. He says any responsible scientist doesn't take their Bible into the lab with them. And he says for him, um, he's heard God described in two ways. Universally, God is all-powerful if there's a God, and he's all good if there's a God. And that's the way the Bible describes God. And, and, and Neil says that he does not see, when he looks at the world and he looks at cancer arriving in little kids and, and, and he looks at sex trafficking and child soldiers and he looks at all the people dying and all the pain and tsunamis and the earthquake in Haiti and he looks at all these pains and sufferings that are inflicting the people. He says, how can an all-powerful God be all good and all this evil is happening? And he says, I cannot believe in a God that's all-powerful and all good. Either God is all-powerful and he's not all good, which is why all these bad things are happening, or he's all good, but he doesn't have the power to do anything about all these bad things that are happening. But we can, he does not believe that there can be a God who's all-powerful 
and all good at the same time, and all these evil things are happening in the world. And it's funny because that kind of thought plagues a lot of Christian minds. And I pray that after we go through this psalm, you'll see how God answers this question. Asaph, who is the psalmist, um, he was a uh, choir director and he, he was really close to David. In fact, on three occasions in the Old Testament, in um, 1 Samuel and Numbers and in Chronicles, uh, he's named with David even when they list uh, all the other choir directors, he's named with David, indicating that he had a special relationship with David, a special closeness to David, and he's written about 10 psalms. Psalm 73 is one of those psalms, and if you want to get a reverse view of Psalm 73, it's interesting, read Psalm 37. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same message from a different perspective. Um, and it starts out like this. He says, so the first point we're going to go over, God is good to his own. God is good to those who he has called. God is good to those who are chosen. God is good to Israel. First verse, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he starts out by being very clear that he understands that God is good. We just sang, oh, how he loves us. Maybe not everybody in here can say that statement with certainty, but if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can say that. And here we have the psalmist making it very clear that he knows that God is good to Israel, and not just Israel by ceremony, because there is true Israel of Israel, those who, are, who share the same faith as Abraham, not just the same bloodline. But Israel, surely God is good to Israel, to his chosen, to his anointed, to those who are pure in heart, those who have accepted Jesus Christ, the only son of God. Truly God is good to all those people. Uh, the Old Testament is filled with text. Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mark 10, 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. James 1, 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The point is that the scriptures are very clear that God is all good. Now, I know Neil questioned this, and I know a lot of us question this, but the Bible reveals that God is all good, for sure. And he's definitely good to Israel, to those who know him, those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And that's how the psalmist opens up this psalm. Verse 2 and 3 brings us to the next point where we see the temptation of the psalmist. First, the psalmist says, surely God is good to Israel. I know this is true. Verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here's the temptation, the temptation to envy the wicked. What is he saying here? He says, but as for me, almost comparing himself to God, he says, surely God is good and he's perfect and good. But as for me, I'm not so good. 
But as for me, I almost slipped. As for me, I almost left my faith behind. As for me, I almost turned my back on this whole Jesus thing, on this whole church thing, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked and I envied them. What is that, the prosperity of the wicked? So people who do not know God, people who would even curse God, people who live lives that are full of sin that you see on a daily basis. They are your bullies at school. They are your bullies in the classroom. They are the thugs on the corner. They are the drug dealers. They are the rapists. They are the prisoners, the criminals. They are the people who are doing all kinds of evil in this world and their life is good. How can you, O oh God, be good and I see all this evil that these people are doing and they're living life good? Their life is pleasant. They are prosperous. I envy them. There's only one thing that would cause you to envy somebody is because they have something you don't. And so the psalmist is saying, I looked at the wicked and I see that they are prospering and therefore my feet had almost slipped. He said, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I almost gave up my faith. I almost gave up on this thing that we call walking with Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. Here we have the psalmist dealing with what a lot of us deal with, which is when we think that the grass is greener on the other side. All right, it's a popular phrase. And there's another popular phrase that says, if the grass looks greener on the other side, it's probably fake. It's probably astroturf. Okay? It's not really grass. Um, and we see, uh, for example, take a look at some of these beer commercials where you have these guys who uh, have their six-pack abs. You know, they're trying to sell a six-pack of beer. Guys with the six-pack abs, and they're drinking their beers, and they're having a good time. Life is good. This is it. This is living. Got a beer, got my shirt off, ah, right? <laughs> but it's funny because if you keep drinking beer, your stomach's not going to look like that, right? <laughs> it's not going to look like that. So there's this, there's this lie, there's this deception. This, it, 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 it's like they're pointing, they're saying, this is life, this is prosperity. We've arrived, this is what it's all about. When really it's a lie, the, the, the music video that you love so much um, um, where people are partying and drinking and, 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 and getting high and all this on the third, looks like they're having a ball, they're living life and you envy them and you're like, why can't I drive a nice car like that, an S-Class, a Bugatti, a Maserati, whatever? Why can't I have those clothes, those girls, those, that gold? Why can't I be that guy? They don't show you the person who's passed out over the toilet from being drunk. They don't show you the people who have fallen into infidelity because they were drunk and now their household is broken. They don't show you the drug addicts who are addicted to a drug that's destroying their life and their family. They don't show you the whole picture. So we get envious of this lie. But the reality is if the grass looks greener, it's probably fake. 
Moving on to verse 4. He continues and he says, For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He's still talking about these people. And he's saying they don't have, they don't suffer like we suffer. All the way until the day they die, even on their dying bed, they have their children around them. They have money around them. They have all the love around them. And they lived a horrible life. They probably killed people. They robbed people. They steal, stole from people. They harmed people. And even on their deathbed, they're not suffering. Until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. And it's not fat in a bad way. It's fat meaning that they have enough money to buy food. They don't miss meals like us in America. They don't go a whole week like people do in Haiti without knowing when their next meal is coming from. They know their next meal is at 1130. And they know that it's bacon and it's all the good stuff, right? Their bodies are fat and sleek, verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They don't have the same problems as others because they have power, they have money, they have respect. So they are shot callers. They're able to make decisions and make things happen. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So they are above the rest of mankind. They are not the average Joes. Therefore, verse 6, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So because they're not your average Joes, because they are the Beyonce's, the Jay-Z's, the Rihanna's, the people who everybody puts their names up in lights and everybody honors them and worships at their feet, they're not like anybody else. Their celebrity status, they're, they're, they got pride and their pride is so... Uh, 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 exuberant that it's as though it were a necklace they were wearing. They wouldn't even need the necklace to be standing proud. Me, I need a $25,000 necklace so I can stand proud, but their pride is so potent, so powerful because of their position, because they have so much prosperity, because they are living a life how they want and they're still prospering. They have such pride that it, it's like something they wear. Violence covers them as a garment. They they, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. So because they speak how they want. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. What's a folly? A folly is foolishness. Folly is, is something dumb that you do. It's an it's a error. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, 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 a bad spot in your life, if you will. And they're boastful about their follies. They're boastful about their sin. They're proud to tell you that they're a gangster for life and that they kill people. Or they're proud to tell you that they sleep with hundreds of thousands of women, and they break up marriages. They're proud about their folly. They boast about their own foolishness, their own filth, their own sin. They boast about it. And as a result of them boasting about it, uh, verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Um, loftily, they threaten oppression. So not only do they, are they proud about their own uh, filth and their own sin, but they even threaten to oppress anyone who opposes them. I got guns, I, I got the Glock and the Rari, right? Anybody who comes against me and my crew, 
We're going to have problems. So they're able to threaten oppression. They have power. They have authority. They sin and they're not sorry about it. They're not repented about it. In fact, they're proud about it. They boast and they condone it and they encourage others to do the same. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Of course, all the people looking on, all the youth, everybody looking at them, finds no fault and says, well, they must be doing something right. Look how good their life is. I mean, this is the girl that you know was being really loose all throughout for, for many, many years. And you've been good. Lord, how come she got a man and a good one and I'm still alone? So people look to them and say, surely they must be doing something right and people find no fault in them. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? So now they question God. They're so proud, they are so prosperous, they are running things in this world so much that now they look to God and say, how can God know? Is there even knowledge in the Most High? Yeah, I believe there's a force up there somewhere. I believe in some sort of primordial uh, force that brought us all to be here, but is there really knowledge? Is there a personality to God? Is there really this old man in the sky or is it really just the universe? They question God's very existence, question God's omniscience, questioning God now, because that's how proud they've become. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Behold. These are the wicked. This is how beautiful their life is. They increase in riches. They're getting richer and richer and richer and richer, more popular, more beautiful, always at ease. They have no problems, no stress. Remember the commercial, right? Remember that grass is always greener, right? It's not a lie because you have celebrities, people who are making it big time, trying to commit suicide all the time. It's not always what it seems, but because this psalmist is just looking at the prosperity of the wicked, he's, his perception has been clouded now. His judgment has been clouded now. He's believed this lie, this deception, and now he's envying them. And then he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean, verse 13, and washed my hands in innocence. He's saying, Lord, I've been good. I don't sleep around, and I can, because there's a lot of pretty girls looking at me all the time. But because I want to be faithful to you, God, I don't. Um, I want to cheat on my test, but, and, and just like the rest of the students who are next to me cheating on their test, getting A's, I don't, God, because I don't want to be a liar and a deceiver and a cheater. I want to be good, as you called me to. Uh, all these things that I see my friends doing or people in the world doing and they're getting away with it, I don't do it. Their life, beautiful. My life, horrible. All I do is suffer. It says in verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
I don't do all the things that they do, but the little sins that I do fall into, I'm so filled with guilt over them, I can't even enjoy my day. And it's like you have somebody pointing in my face every time I do a little thing. How can this be fair, God? And here we hear the voice of uh, Neil saying, I can't see an all-good God and an all-powerful God in a world where the evil people are prospering till death. That's all the way to verse 14, and so there's a temptation to envy the wicked. Now, point three, where we have an honest self-reflection. Verse 15 through 17 says, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What does that mean? Basically what the psalmist is saying is that all these thoughts that are bubbling up inside of him, that he's wrestling with this battle that's going on inside of him, if he had opened his mouth to speak it while he's on the pulpit and share his doubts and frustrations about this walk with God, he would have betrayed God's children. He would have, he would have destroyed the faith of some because they're younger in the faith and they can't handle what he's going through. They don't know how to process that information. In fact, he's a leader in the, in the faith. He's a leader in the church, and he's struggling with this. Yet alone somebody who got saved yesterday. So he's saying, if I had said these things that were going on in my mind, I would have betrayed your children. I would have destroyed their faith. So what does that mean? I had to keep it all boiled inside of me and wrestle with it on my own. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task. So he's pondering, how do I understand? How do I make sense of this world where all this evil is happening and all these evil people are doing well and all these good people are suffering and dying and not doing so well? How do I make sense of this? And it became wearisome to him. Verse 17, key verse, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So there's a, there's a moment here where it says until. So all this was happening, all this turmoil was going on inside of him, all this doubt, all this fear, all these questions are going on inside of him until he enters the sanctuary of God. Now, in Old Testament, that would have meant that he had went into the temple and went into the holies and he prayed and spent time in the presence of God to change you. But because Jesus came, Jesus died, and he rose again, Jesus tore the veil between the holy of holies and the holies in the temple so that now we are the temple, so that now we can go into the presence of God at any given moment. Right here, right now, you don't need to go to a, a priest. You don't need to go to your pastor. You don't need to go to your mother or father. You could just close your eyes and enter into the sanctuary of God by invoking the name of Jesus, by meditating on his word and meditating and listening and praying and focusing on the Lord. You can enter into the presence of God. And so he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. So now there's a shift in his view. He has a new viewpoint. Because before, he was looking vertically at all his peers. And he's looking. And he's looking at this parade going by him. And it looks like so much fun. 
They're dancing. They're drinking. They're having a ball. They're high. Their music is blasting. And it's a parade going by. And there's so many people doing it. And they're all doing so much evil. And there's so much violence. And I can't be a part of that because I'm a child of God. But honestly, I just want to be a part of it because they're doing so well. And there's this parade going by. And I'm eating these scraps. And Matthew 7.13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for their gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The way to destruction is a broad way and there are many who go to it. So the fact that it's so popular, a road, means that it's not good for them. But while we're sitting on the ground looking at the parade going down, it's hard to see that it's not good for them. So what happens? I want you to imagine God, now he enters the sanctuary of God and now he gets God's perspective. And he now has a bird's eye view. And he's looking down at the parade and he could see the path in which the parade is taking and he sees that at the end of the path is a cliff and he sees that that cliff is a very dangerous cliff that's going to destroy anyone who's on that path. It took his view to change, kind of like a GPS. You're stuck in traffic. You don't know whether you should try taking that route, take 93, go the back route, take Blue Hill. You don't know which way has less traffic from your view. But if you invoke the GPS, you now have a different view from above that can map it out for you and say, hey, this is the fastest route. All you have to do now is obey the GPS and you'll get there the fastest route. Now, so this is what Asaph is doing. He now shifts his focus from looking at man from his perspective, from man's perspective, envying them because it looks so good. And now he's entered into the presence of God. He's now high and he sees their end. He sees that all of this is going to end one day and it will not be good. Fourth point, here's the fate of the world. The world and everything in it is passing away. Verse 18, truly you set them on slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So now, he's talking about them in a different way, isn't he? Same group of people that he was just envying because of all the things that they have. And now because he's entered into the sanctuary of God, he's looking at them from God's perspective now. And he says, surely, Lord, you have put them on slippery places. So the road that they're traveling on, it might look good, but it's slippery. Um, you make them fall to ruin. They're going down to their destruction in the path that they're taking. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're stacking up treasures and riches, but when they die, they can't take it with them. And they're living for the moment, but death is certain. There's many things in this world that are not certain that we prepare for, like getting a good job or living tomorrow. But for sure, we know death 
is going to come for us all. So to not to prepare for death is foolish. They are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrorists, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's almost like when you wake up from a dream and you instantly forget the dream, or a day later and you try to recall the dream, it's almost as though you can't think of what the dream was. That's what they're going to be in eternity. So imagine, I just want to say this with you, uh, what profits a man to gain the whole world but in the end lose his soul? Imagine if you live this life 80 years in this world and you have Bill Gates money. You could buy anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. You have jets outside in the airport so you don't ever have to fly commercial. You have limousine drivers willing to pick you up so you never have to even step on a gas. You can go wherever you want, whenever you want, eat whatever you want, and this world is basically yours. Is it worth sacrificing eternity in hell, suffering God's wrath forever? When Jesus was on earth preaching, he preached three times more about hell than he preached about heaven making it very clear to everybody who hearing him that destruction is coming for those who practice evil. And this is what Neil needs to hear. How does an all-powerful God be all good at the same time? He will judge all evil. Yes, Neil, you are right. Right now, evil is still reigning in this world. Yes, you are right. There are a lot of pains and suffering in this world. But rest assured, judgment day is coming. Rest assured, God will make right all the wrongs that have been done to you. God will pay back all the sin that have been caused against you. Everyone who has harmed you will pay for it. Everyone who you have harmed, if you believe in Jesus Christ, Jesus has already paid for it. So judgment day is coming, and there will be a day of reckoning. And he's right, today is not that day. If he requires today to be that day, if you require today to be that day, you might miss this narrow road, and you might go ahead on that broad way, but be careful. It might be fun now, but it leads to destruction. Fifth point of the psalm. Verse 21 and 22, where we find that he has personal confession. He says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast towards you. Speaking to God still. Now he's moved on. First he was envying the wicked. Now he's changed his view. He's looking at them from God's perspective. He sees their end. He's like, oh, doesn't look so hot now. And now he's being real about the fact that, you know what, God, when I was, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, because the truth is, I really was bitter against you, God. It didn't make sense, oh God, that all these people are living so good when they're doing so much evil, and I'm, I'm hustling day and night to please you, and my life is horrible. I'm bitter towards you, God, for this. And he says, when my soul was embittered, when, my prick, prick, uh, uh, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. 
I was proud and I judged you. And I said, oh God, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. I was like a beast towards you. I was nothing more than just an animal, wild animal in the field with no knowledge of the Most High, with no understanding of reality, just my own self-centered It's all I could view. And the people that are around me with all their deception that I'm now envying, and so now I'm all confused and messed up, but I was a beast before you. I was arrogant before you. The thing I love about that part of the, of the whole psalm is how real he gets with God. Because a lot of times we don't get real with God. We try to play church with God. In church, we learn this thing I call Christianese. You know, you come to church, hallelujah, how you doing? Bless the Lord, oh, God is good, oh, hallelujah. We, we know how to speak. Uh, always, everything is always good. How are you doing? Oh, God is good, bless the Lord. But when we're in the presence of God, God is like, no, you don't need a fake over here. We keep it real right here. We keep it real. You can tell God, God, I don't want to spend time with you because I want to sin, God. Matter of fact, I'm here in church today, but I already have plans to go sin on Friday. I already got plans to go sin tomorrow, Memorial Day weekend, barbecue. I got plans to sin against you. That's me being real with you, God. The reality is the psalmist is not hiding, but he's being honest and he's confessing truly before God that his heart wasn't bitter towards God when he couldn't make sense of this. Psalm 51, 17 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Nothing pleases God more than when you admit that you're broken. See, that's the difference between people of God and people in the world. People of God, when you come to church, you know what the difference is? It's not that we're perfect. We're not. We all know that we're not perfect. We know we're broken. So we come to Jesus to be made whole. Those in the world deny that they're broken. And they want to live life in that broken vessel the way it is, as it is broken. Even though it's not fulfilling the purpose in which it was created for. It's like a car that just wants to sit in a lot and look pretty. You were created to drive. No, I just want to sit and look pretty because my ignition doesn't work. And I don't want anybody to come in here, try to fix my ignition and tell me how to live my life. I want to sit here and look pretty. You were a car you were designed to drive. No, my ignition's broken. No, it's not. I just, I was created to sit here and look pretty. And they don't want to admit that they're broken. And so if you can't admit that you're broken, you can't confess your sin before God. And if you don't confess your sin before God, God will not forgive you of your sin. And if God does not forgive you of your sin, you are still on the road to destruction. Still on the road to destruction. And he was a brute, arrogant beast before God. That's his confession. Uh, the sixth point, final point, is when he comes to a renewed commitment to God now. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Whoa, what a difference from where we begin. 
the first, the second verse said, as for me, my feet had almost slipped because I envied the wicked. But now he's saying that there's nothing in the earth that I desire but you, oh God. What's the difference? The difference is he spent time in the presence of God. He spent time in the presence of God. That's the difference. That's what changed his view. So I challenge you and I ask you today, when was the last time you spent time in the presence of God? Hello? Can you hear me? When was the last time you spent time in the presence of God that you escaped from your, your family, your wife, your kids, your husband, your sisters, brothers, friends, and you escaped like Jesus did with his disciples often. He escaped from them. And he would find himself on a mountain somewhere doing what? Spending time with the Father. Getting some fuel, his gas stations. Getting refueled because he's spending time in the presence of God so that he keeps that perspective of God and he doesn't become envious of the world because he keeps his perspective through God's eyes when he looks at the world. And so it changes how he lives his life and the behaviors that he, is, that he exhibits. It says in verse 23, nevertheless, I, you, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Now, I remember when I was a little kid, um, I was really, really little. I used to think my father was the strongest man in the world because literally with one hand, he would just pick me up. I'd be fighting to bring him down and he would just pick me up with one hand. I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, my dad could beat up your dad. And I think my dad's just the most strong person in the world. And anytime I feel, felt insecure, or I felt unsure, all I need to do is run to dad and hold his hand. And I know he could pick me up in a moment and I'm safe and I could look at anybody. Mm. Right? And, and, and it's, it's interesting because now that I'm a dad, I see my son do the same thing. When he's holding my hand, man, he's so confident the way he's walking. He can say anything to anybody. He feels like he's just, he's protected. He's good. And this is the same image that is being painted here. He said, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Or better translation, you are continually with me. You hold my right hand. You hold my right hand. And it's like uh, uh, spending time in the presence of God. I don't know how corny it might seem, but, but there's a reason why when people worship and they enter the presence of God, they lift their hands up, right? Well, what does that remind you of? It's the kid saying, Daddy, up, right? Or they lift one hand up to say, Father, hold my hand. I, I need you. So when you're in your prayer time by yourself at home and you're worshiping, try that. <laughs> try putting your hand up and just holding on to God's hand and say, you hold me through it all. I see the prosperity of the wicked. I see all the stress and harm in my life. But you know what, God? You hold me through it all. You hold me through it all. Uh, you guide me with your counsel. You put all the right people in my life that I need to counsel me and help me to make sense of the things of life. You put your word here for me to read and, and meditate on and for me to learn where to go and what to do and how to live. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. So not only, so this life is, is nothing to be compared to the glory that lies ahead. There's a lot of suffering and pain in this world, but my hope comes in the fact that this is not it. This is not it. We don't live for this world. The Satan and sin can have this world with all of its problems. But when you put everything on God, he adds no sorrow to it. 
There's not, at the end of the day, we will be taken up to glory. We will live forever with God where there will be no sin, where there will be no pain, where there will be no struggle, no crying, no pain anymore. Life won't sin forever. That's our hope. Not that we're going to get married one day, envying those who are married. Not that we're going to be free from marriage one day, envying those who are single. Not that we're going to be rich one day, envying those who have things. Or completely be uh, dis uh, 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 uncommunicated or disconnected from everybody else because you're so uh, desired that it's overwhelming. So I just want to free myself from everybody. The worst thing that can happen is meeting your childhood hero. Why? Because you realize that they're nothing more than human. That they're flawed. And everything you ever thought, everything you ever aspired to be because of them has now come crashing down. I'm going to finish this. <laughs> Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my heart. Uh, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Um, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Last verse, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So he ends in the presence of God. He ends by saying, my flesh and my heart may fail. All these things in the world, my flesh, everything that I desire, that I'm envious of, everything that I have, everything that I consider myself to be may fail. And honestly, one day will fail because I'm going to die one day. I'm not going to have this job forever. I'm not going to have these kids around forever. I'm not going to be in a situation that I'm in forever. But one thing that I will have forever is God. Because when it's all said and done, and death comes knocking at your door, and before you thought you were an exception to the rule, understand that death is coming for you. Maybe not today, hopefully not tomorrow, hopefully not in the next 10 years. But over 56,000 people already died today in the world. Your day is coming. And the only thing that you could be sure, when you're sitting in the casket or lying in the casket, and all your people are crying for you because they miss you, it is now you and God face to face, naked before God. And now the question is, is he your enemy or is he your friend? If you don't know Jesus, you're already a sinner. We are all sinners. What makes Jesus so special? Jesus was the only man to ever walk the face of this earth without sin. The only man to be born of a virgin woman. Jesus is the only person who was not created but incarnated because he existed before he became a man. Jesus Christ is the most unique person to ever exist in human history. And he has taken the penalty of all those who would believe in him. So if you believe in Jesus, guess what? He already paid the penalty of your sin at the cross. Already paid in full. No debt left. But if you don't believe in Jesus, guess what? You got a debt to pay. 
And when death comes knocking at your door, that's when God's collection agency finally caught up with you. And he's going to come collect that debt. You've been living a life of sin, unrepentant. God is going to deal with you. If you've been living a life of sin, of course, because we all sin, but you've been repentant and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your debt has already been paid for. Praise the Lord, I get to live forever in glory with my God. Whom have I in heaven but you? Imagine going to heaven and every single ailment that you ever had is gone. Every single pain, every single thing you hate about yourself is fixed. Every family member you've ever lost is right there with you and they're at their best. Wow, heaven. But what if God's not there? Is it still heaven? This ends by saying that it is good for me to dwell in the presence of God. In fact, what he's saying is that compared to getting high, compared to getting drunk, compared to sleeping around, all the pleasures that that brings, spending time in God's presence is even better. It actually brings more pleasure in the world, not in the world to come. Spending time in God's presence, I challenge you, start your day with God. Start your day with God and see how seamless your day flows. See how connected you are with God and which decisions to make throughout your day. Which road to take throughout your day. What to say yes to, what to say no to. It's just so much more clear. And spending time in the presence of God, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It really is pleasurable. But unless you taste it, you don't know. And you're stuck chasing the little wings. And you're chasing the life of all these rappers and Hollywood stars that's leading them to destruction. So let us change our view and make God our priority. Amen. Amen. Father God, thank you for this time that you allowed me to speak to your people and communicate Psalm 73, one of the most real psalms.